just so you know, when I visit your homes, one of the first things I'm going to do is go and see what you have stuck on your refrigerator. <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> I love checking out people's refrigerators. Um, I hope you don't think that's creepy. Uh, but, you know, what a person puts on their refrigerator is usually important to them. You know, pe people stick the important stuff on the refrigerator, right? Uh, you know, they put family photos. They'll put the school calendar, the latest drawing from junior, baby announcements, wedding invitations, etc., etc. So I'm just saying, be careful as to what's on your refrigerator, because I'm going to look at it. Now, occasionally what will be posted on the family refrigerator is the family rules. Anybody here have the family rules stuck up on the refrigerator? I did as a kid, and I visited some friends years ago who did the same thing. So they had a list, it was like this bright green poster board, and it was stuck on the refrigerator, and it was the, uh, a list of the three house rules. The three house rules. So it was, in, it was bright green, it was big, so that the kids could easily see it and read it. And so I asked my friends if the rules displayed in this way helped their children's behavior. And their response was to smile and say, no, not really. Our kids are still heathens. Okay, so I'm not saying don't put a list of house rules up on your fridge. That's fine if you want to do that. Uh, there's some advantages to it. You know, it shows your children what you value, what's important to you. As their parents, it shows, it shows them how they ought to treat you and treat one another, right? So there's a lot of positives to that. But, but you just need to know that the rules you post will not in themselves create the behavior you desire for your children. And you know, all rules are like that. All rules are like that. They guide behavior, but they don't create it. They don't create it. At this very moment, as we sit here tonight, there are a record number of laws in America. Also, as we sit here tonight, there are a record number of people in jail. So I would say it's fairly obvious then that laws by themselves don't create compliance. And it's no different with God's laws. It's no different. God's moral law is right, good, and true. But by itself, it cannot create a desire within us to follow it. It can guide right desires, but it cannot give right desires. Or as Paul will put it 
in tonight's passage, the law cannot give life. Let's turn there now. Our passage tonight is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Again, that's on ljc.life. If you want to turn there, it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. This is Galatians 3, 15. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Christians in Galatia. He says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. And what a word we have tonight. Please, Father, give us your spirit so that this isn't just some intellectual exercise, but this is a spiritual exercise exercise that affects our very souls our very minds and our very hearts and most of all father we humbly ask you to please let us see jesus let us see jesus tonight in these words it's in his name we pray amen Okay, so we live in a world filled to the rim with laws and rules. It's filled to the rim. We have even more than ancient Israel had. I mean, we just got rules running out of our ears. We got rules for our rules. And yet, just like the Israelites, you and I are prone to think that we can find life in the rules. We just obey the rules. 
will be okay. And that's whether it's God's rules or man's rules. If we just stick to the rules, we'll be good. And we think that we can simply legislate morality. And so when society gets out of control, we just need to put more rules on people. That'll fix it. As fallen creatures, this is one of our fundamental mistakes. Looking to the rules to find life. To make life better. Now, for those of us addicted to seeking life in the law, this passage provides sweet medicine. It's sweet medicine. Paul shows us here three key biblical concepts and how they relate to the law. So this is a subject that is often very confusing for people. And so Paul is going to really, really help, help us out tonight, okay? He shows us three biblical concepts and how they relate, what their relationship is to the law of God. He shows us the law and the promise, the law and sin, and the law and the life. Number one, the law and the promise. Look at verses 15 through 18. The law and the promise. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now the last few weeks we've looked at God's promise to Abraham. And, and though God promised to bless the world through Abraham, the law that God gave to Abraham's offspring actually blocked the flow of His blessing. The law blocked the blessing, the, lack, the law actually brought about a curse on anyone who tried to follow it, as we looked at last week. Therefore, we can logically conclude that what God promised to Abraham has not and indeed cannot come through the law. The blessing cannot come through the law. Just the opposite, in fact. So what in the world is God up to? What's he up to here? Why does his law and his promise seem opposed to one another? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. So here in verses 15 through 18, Paul explains how God's law relates to his promise. More specifically, how does the law that God gave Moses relate to the promise that God made to Abraham when he said, in you all nations will be blessed. How do we reconcile those two things? How do we reckon this law that curses us with this promise to Abraham that in you all nations will be blessed? Many, many people are of the mindset that obedience to the law 
directs the promises of God. Many, many preachers will tell you that. They see the law as a kind of funnel into which God pours his blessings. I obey, and then God in turn blesses me. That's certainly how the Christians in Galatia saw things. If you want the blessing promised to Abraham, you run to the law to get it. Obey. But, if you believe that's how the law and the promise work, you are actually changing the promise to Abraham. You're adding a ridiculous amount of complexity to a very simple promise. In you, all nations will be blessed. So Paul explains that God's promise and law do not relate to each other like that at all. They do not. The law doesn't change the original promise at all, whatsoever. Verses 15 and 17 through 18. Look what Paul says here. He really tries to help us out. He says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Verse 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, after the promise, right, does not set aside the covenant previously established or the, the promise of blessing and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in His grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. See, the promise to Abraham was based purely and solely on God's grace. And nothing else. It required nothing from Abraham or his descendants in order to receive it. God promised it, and they become hell or high water. It's coming. Next, more importantly, or even more importantly, I should say, Paul clarifies the identity of the recipient of God's promise to Abraham. This may shock you, but the recipient is not Israel. And the recipient is not even the church. According to this text, the true recipient of God's promise to Abraham is a single seed. Verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Here is Paul's central point about God's promises. Christ Jesus is the one true beneficiary of all that God has promised. 
Jesus is the one true beneficiary of everything God promised. And when you think about it for just a second, you kind of want to say, duh, right? Who else deserves God's promises and blessings and favor? You? Me? Nah. No offense. Actually, yeah, offense. We don't deserve any of God's blessings. But there is one who does deserve it. And his name is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So, as far as we're concerned then, Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the promise. He is the source of everything God wants for us. And how do we get Jesus? By strict obedience to the law, right? No. But by faith. Look at verse 14 from last week. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise the spirit it is not strict obedience to the law it's by faith that we receive all the promises of god in christ so don't make the same mistake as israel and the galatians don't look anywhere for blessing other than to Jesus. Okay, point number two, the law and sin. How does the law and sin relate to one another? Verses 19 through 20. Paul says, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Okay, so if the law doesn't affect the promise, why was the law given at all? If the promise was still going to come just anyway, what's the law for? The Ten Commandments, right? What's it for? Paul gives a profound answer here, and it's actually pretty provocative, too. One that preachers rarely mention. Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. Because of transgressions. God gave his law because of our sin. Now think about it for a, for a minute. God gave the law because of sin. 
And that's actually the same reason governments, teachers, employers, and parents make rules and laws too. You know why we put the sticker of the three house rules on the refrigerator? For Junior? Because Junior's a sinner. That's why. If Junior wasn't a sinner, he wouldn't need the rules on the fridge, would he? And if we weren't all sinners, the government wouldn't have a record rule, a, a record number of rules right now, a record number of laws. We wouldn't need the law, right? Duh. There would be no need for rules anywhere. If we were good little boys and girls. Now, yes, God's law, just like our household rules, reveals to God's children something of who he is. And that's very important. The law does reveal the nature of God, right? So when, for instance, when God says, you shall not steal, what he's really saying is, I don't steal. When he says, you should not lie, he's saying, I tell the truth. I am the truth. So that's important, and that's a very important part of the law. Uh, and it shows us what God cares about and how he wants us to relate to him and to one another, and that's very important. It reveals God as supremely holy, and we need to know that. So that's a great aspect of the law. But Paul's point here is that the primary purpose of the law is to curb sin and keep it from running wild. Ironically, though, in the law's attempt to curb sin, the law has another effect on us. It exposes our sin. The law not only reveals the holy nature of God, but the wicked nature of men. The law shows us that we cannot keep the law. At least not anywhere near to the extent required. This is so important, I don't know that I can state it emphatically enough. This is so important to understand. We must be clear on the purpose of God's law or we will suffocate under its power. It will choke us to death. God's law is a good thing. It is a great thing. But we must see it for what it was intended for and use it in that fashion. Charles Spurgeon said, a handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. I see too many Christians trying to shave with the law, with a chainsaw. And it's just cutting them to death. <laughs> it's cutting them to death. The purpose of the law is to reveal God's nature. To curb sin. But also to reveal sin's power over us. 
That's very important to understand. Which brings us to our last point, number three, the law and life. The law and life. Now, so far, you would hopefully agree with me, it, it seems that Paul is, seems to be saying that the law's purpose is largely a negative one, right? It's intended to restrain sin and reveal sin. But this again, does it not, does it not make it still seem like the law is at odds with the promise? It does to me anyway. Right? So this would be like posting the family rules on the refrigerator and saying, okay, kids, here are the rules of the house. Now, these rules are here to expose your wickedness and get you into trouble. Your kids would think you're crazy. Dad's finally lost it. We knew it would happen one day. Paul anticipates this response. Verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Paul's answer to his own question here leaves no doubt. Verse 21. Absolutely not. Exclamation point. The law is not opposed to the promises. Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Paul's fundamental insight into God's law here is that it cannot give life. And it was never meant to do so. Never meant to do so. And again, this same insight applies to all laws and rules, or it should. It should. The rules on the refrigerator for Junior will not impart life into him. They can guide him, and they can help in other ways that we've talked about, but they will not give him life. If he looks to those rules for life, he will only find death and punishment. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the law cannot provide you with the motivation to do what the law tells you to do. It can definitely guide you in doing God's will, but it cannot motivate you to want to do God's will. Do you see the difference? It shows you God's will, but it cannot give you the motivation to want to do it. It cannot, and it was never meant to. It can tell you what desires you should have, but it cannot give you those desires. Understand then that it's not the law's fault that you can't keep the law. Nor is it the lawgiver's fault. 
The fault rests entirely with you and with me. God's good law curses us all. Why? Because we love sin. We love it. We love ourselves. We want to make our own rules and do our own thing. And most of the time we couldn't possibly care less as to what God thinks. And this is a prison from which there is no escape. It's a prison we've each built for ourselves. This is the dramatic conclusion to which we come tonight. But it's exactly where Paul is leading us. Verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. Now, this was true even for the chosen people of Israel. Think about that. Their history is marked by sin and rebellion and ultimately judgment. Even God's chosen people couldn't do this. The law crushed them when they ran to it for safety and for life. It crushed them. And they had God literally tabernacling with them. Literally, God was with them. He gave them the opportunity to commune directly with Him. You see, Israel had the right circumstances to obey the law. Just not the right heart to obey it. Therefore, the gift of God's good law led to their undoing. And it would have led to our undoing also. If it wasn't for one thing. Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. No, the law can't give you a heart for obedience, but the seed can. Jesus spoke of a seed and its purpose in John 12, 24, saying, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. You see, the seed that the Father promised was a seed that would be trampled on. 
a seed that would be crushed, a seed that would die for you and for me. The law could not produce life in us, but the death of God's seed would. And the death of that one seed would produce millions and millions and millions of seeds the world over. Several of which are gathered in this room tonight. And when that glorious seed, Jesus Christ, the precious Son of of God, when that seed is planted in your heart, it will produce much fruit. It will produce obedience in you. It will produce the fruit of joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it's not you. It's the seed. It's the seed doing all the work. You may have noticed that people who root their lives in obedience to the law tend to be cold, prickly, sharp, and brittle. They're usually not pleasant to be around, at least not up close. They might be from afar, but not up close. They're what we might call spiritual porcupines. That's what the law produces. But those who simply rest in the gospel, and not in their own works, but in the works of Jesus, in the death and resurrection of the seed. They produce the lush, happy fruit of the Spirit. So the question is, how do you get this seed? How do you rest in the gospel? Verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Believe. The only important question for us to answer if we want the life that God has promised. The only important question for us to answer every day, every hour, every minute is this question. Do I believe the gospel? Do I believe the gospel? Do I really believe it? Not just lip service, but do I really believe 
that I am so wicked. Christ had to die for me. But also that I am so loved. Christ wanted to die for me. If you do believe that, you have the seed. And it will produce much fruit in you. This is the whole idea of Christianity, folks. It's the whole idea. Christianity is not about the law. Now, like we said, the law can certainly guide us, it, for, for sure. There are positive aspects of the law, no question, and God gave it for those reasons. The law can certainly be a guide for you, but only the gospel can create in you the desire to obey it. This is why Paul said, it is the love of Christ that compels us. He didn't say it was the law that compels us. It was the love of Christ that compels us. And when the eyes of your heart are open to see the precious Lamb of God slain for you in your place, and you really do see that, it will compel you. It will compel you forward out into a lost and dying world to spread that message of good news to everyone you come in contact with. You might say, well, don't we need the law? Don't we need the law to get out there and do stuff? No, you don't. The law can guide us as we go, but it cannot compel us to go. Only the love of Christ can do that. So, don't look to the law for life. Look to the Lamb. As an old hymn says, there is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. So look, look, look unto him, unto him who was nailed to the tree. Let's pray together. Jesus, help us to look unto you, to fix our eyes on you, Lord. and never stray. Help us with your spirit, precious Jesus, to not look to the things of this world, money and houses and cars and jobs and good looks and intelligence and anything else that this world might tell us is important. Help us stop looking to those things to find life. Please help us look to you. 
our crucified one. The precious promised seed. The only seed that can produce any fruit. Help us look to you, Lord, and you alone. Your name that we pray, Lord. Amen.